Well, let's, uh, let's pray and, and get started for tonight. Lord, we do give you honor and glory. We worship you, the triune God, uh, you who have spoken in your word and revealed yourself. And so we pray, as you have inspired the word to be written, that you would illuminate our hearts that we might understand it. Uh, we know that uh, the natural man does not discern the things of God because they are spiritual. They are revealed by the Spirit. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and open our eyes that we might behold wonders from the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So tonight we're on Micah chapter 4. Uh, if you got a chance to read it this week, uh, hopefully you... Uh, found it to be a bit more encouraging than the previous three chapters. Uh, the previous three chapters were, uh, the vast majority of them were about uh, God's judgment coming on his people uh, for their sin, for their idolatry. Chapter 4 opens up uh, a, a much larger section where Micah now starts talking about the future and the future salvation and deliverance that God has promised his people. So remember where we are in Micah. We're in the second major oracle, so there's those three oracles, each beginning with the word here. And this one goes from chapter 3 to chapter 5. And uh, we're in the, so chapter 3 was really the big judgment section. And now we have a bigger salvation section here in chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4 can be broken down into a couple different parts. Uh, I broke it into, into two parts, verses 1 to 8, promises of future glory, verses 9 to 13, promises amid present distress. I couldn't decide whether it was amid or amidst, so I did what everybody does when they can't figure it out. I googled it. Apparently they're interchangeable. So if you don't agree with me, take it up with Google. Um, I actually I noticed then as I was starting to look at chapter 5 today that uh, there's, there's a connection between verses 9 to 13 and the first part of, of chapter 5. So um, stick that in the back of your mind. We'll talk about that when we study chapter 5. Um, what it's, it's one of the, the reminders that um, the chapter divisions in the verse and chapter divisions in the Bible are sort of arbitrary. Uh, so just remember, the, the only thing in your Bible that is inspired are the words, right? The, the chapter numbers, the verse numbers, those are things that we added later to help us find our way around. Uh, so I think that whoever decided to break chapter 4 and chapter 5 where they did, probably didn't do a real good job. And there are a number of places in Scripture where that's the case, where you're wondering what monk back in the 700s decided this was a good idea to break it here. But we're stuck with it now, so uh, that's, we'll, we'll deal with it what we can. But they can, they can give you the, uh, the impression that, that things are, are more disjointed than they really, than they really are. Also, uh, can, uh, what helps with that is the... Uh, the subheads in your Bible. So most of your Bibles probably have little subheadings above sections of Scripture uh, that give you kind of a, a what they would uh, say is a summary of the section. Those are, I find those usually very unhelpful. Uh, first of all, they break up 
the text, so you think, oh, well, now the author's moving to something totally different, which is usually not the case. And uh, particularly when we're studying the Bible for ourselves and we're trying to think, like, well, what's this section about? Uh, you will immediately gravitate, whether you like it or not, to looking at what the subhead says and taking that as your first uh, opinion of what the section is about. Problem is, you actually haven't read the text yet. Uh, and uh, sometimes it may describe something that's happening, but it doesn't actually tell you what the main point of the passage is. So anyway, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. That was just free. So uh, as we look at Micah 4, we're going to see uh, these big, two big sections, 1 to 8, 9 to 13, and then each of those has um, kind of two big sections. So verses 1 to 4, promises of future glory relating to the nations. 6 to 8, promises of future glory related to the remnant, uh, which we already met the remnant a little bit in chapter 2. Um, this opens that up a little bit more. Then verses 9 to 13, uh, promises of rescue despite present suffering and promises of victory despite present defeat. The biggest uh, difference, I think, between these sections is that in verses 1 to 8, it seems like what's in view is almost exclusively the future. Right? He's not really addressing the present. He's addressing everything that we're looking at is happening in the future. Verses 9 to 13, he starts with kind of a description in each of these sections. And this is actually where I, I meant that uh, chapter 5 uh, connects verses... Uh, uh, 5, 1 to 4-ish, uh, is, um, is another promise, and each of these begins with the word now. So it seems like these all belong together. So, uh, But I said we're going to study chapter 4 and not chapter 5, so we're not getting to chapter 5 tonight. But just keep that in mind that that's coming. Um, in these verses, it's, it starts with uh, an explanation of something that's happening now, but then moves again into the future. So it contrasts the present with the future. So that's how I think th those sections are, are a little bit uh, different. So, but this is, this is good because even as he talks about the, the, the present in verses 9 to 13, and it's a very different tone than the way he's been talking about the present in the previous three chapters. What he's been talking about the present in the previous three chapters has been very much, this is what's happening, and it's terrible, and this is what I'm going to do because of it. Right? Here, it, it's a little bit different. He says, this is what's happening now, but this is what I'm going to do for you in the future. It has a much more encouraging tone to it, so you'll see that as we go. We'll start verse 1. The verses, uh, verses 1 to 4 is this beginning uh, section. Oh, I didn't mention, I forgot to mention, um, this section right here, this verse 5, um, sort of a, a pause in between these promises and, um, and kind of relates both ways. Remember we talked about this, this uh, literary feature last week where there's something that looks both to what came before and what comes after. We called it the Janus construction, right, for the two-faced Roman God. So this is sort of the same kind of thing. Uh, it's a pause that doesn't necessarily fit with either section, uh, but kind of relates to both. So we'll talk about that. But the first section is verses 
uh, 1 to 4, talking about these promise, this promise of future glory, and it's related to the nations, the peoples of the earth. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And it will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for the mighty distant nations. And then they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. And then just verse 4. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So... You move from the end of chapter 3, where it's, it's gone through all of these terrible sins that, uh, that Judah has been committing. Their, their leaders are corrupt and, and uh, idolatrous, and everything's gone wrong. And so God, at the very end, in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, says, Therefore, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, and the place where the temple stands is going to just become a place for trees. It's just going to become... The, the top of a mountain. It's no longer going to be the place where my temple is. It's going to, the, the temple's going to be destroyed, and that happens. And here, we see the same, the same idea, the mountain of the house of the Lord, which is the same kind of terminology that's used in, at the end of chapter 3, but with a very different tone. It says it will come about in the last days. Now, if you remember, if you studied 2 Timothy with us, the idea of the last days in the Bible can have a couple different meanings. Now, typically, when we hear the words last days, we immediately think to the days right before Jesus comes back. So everybody says, do you think we're living in the last days and, and all of these things? And um, if you think yes, that's fine, but so has everybody since the time that Jesus came back. So just be prepared that it may not be in your lifetime. Uh, that's usually what we think of when we hear the word last days. Let the, the term last days can also just mean uh, everything that occurs from the time Jesus came the first time until the time Jesus comes the second time. We see this in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says, uh, In former times God spoke to us in many ways by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. So the writer of Hebrews says, we are living in the last days, but that was 2,000 years ago. So the last days are everything from the time that Jesus went back to heaven to the time he comes again. Right. Uh, in Hebrew, the term can also just mean really just after these things. So it can mean after, after this. But here, I do think it's a reference to um, the time when the Messiah returns. Uh, and I think that we have the benefit of looking back with hindsight and, and looking at kind of how, what Micah describes, the conditions that Micah describes match up with what we see in other parts of Scripture. So we look back from the New Testament, from what the New Testament tells us, from what the rest of the Old Testament tells us, and we see these, these conditions 
that, uh, that the last days are, uh, are going to be like. And it seems to me that what this is describing is the time after Jesus comes back, the time that we call the millennium. Now, there's some people that disagree with that. I read a commentary this week that said, no, I don't, I don't think that's the case. And, uh, and they made some really good arguments. So it's something that I, I, have to, I have to wrestle with. Ultimately, I landed on, no, I, I do still think this is talking about the millennium because of things like the fact that it describes the conditions as being um, the, the nations uh, hammering their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's, it's describing this, this time of peace and security that I don't think you can, you can make be now. Um, it, seems, it seems too universal, uh, it seems too dramatic a shift to be something that, is, that we could say, well, this is happening now spiritually. Though the, the, the arguments that I read in favor of that view are really strong. So uh, it's not my view, but uh, it's possible. You can argue with me about that later if you'd like. Not really, because I'm not that interested in arguing about it. <laughs> um, so... Uh, we see the, the conditions that are changing. Well, it says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. So rather than being destroyed and just being a place where, uh, where trees are going to grow, the, the place where the temple stands, it says, is going to be uh, established as the chief of mountains. So it's going to be uh, the most prominent, the most important mountain, the most important place so it's going to be raised above the hills. So here Micah is picturing a change in geography, right? The, the earth itself is, is going to change, and the mountain is going to be tall. So the tallest mountain in the world is Mount Everest. Micah is saying it's as if Mount Zion is going to be the tallest mountain in the world. Now, whether or not what he intends to communicate is that, that, is, that this is actually going to happen in the sense of this mountain actually growing and Zion growing to 30,000 feet, and so it surpasses Everest. I don't know, because this is poetry. Uh, so what he could be talking about is saying this is going to be worldwide, this is going to be recognized as the center of everything. This is going to be the most important place. So could be both, but... I don't know. So you can decide. But either way, it's going to be the place that the nations come to. Right? It says the peoples are going to stream to it. Um, it's pictured like a river. The peoples are going to flow, not down the mountain, but up the mountain to go to uh, the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. People are going to go up to be where God is, to be where God dwells with his people, right? This is what the temple is, is what the temple is pointing to. If, if this is talking about the future, if this is talking about uh, the millennium when Jesus comes and reigns on the earth, we think of who Jesus is and how Jesus relates to the temple, I think looking forward, what we're really looking at is people coming to Jerusalem to worship Christ, okay? Now, depending on your view, you may think that he's talking about the actual temple. I think Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. 
can listen to my sermon on Haggai 1, and I talk about that. Uh, so we're not going to talk about that now. Again, could be a physical temple. Uh, looking at the way the New Testament talks about it, I'm not convinced by that. But Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the truer temple. So either way, the nations are coming to worship the God of Israel, who we know is Jesus Christ, and, uh, and they're asking to be taught by him. I mean, teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. This is very different than what the nations are doing right now. In Micah's day, well, now too, but in Micah's day, right, the nations are not coming to Jerusalem to worship God. They're coming to Jerusalem to destroy it because they hate God and they hate God's people. This is a, to- this is a complete 180. See in verse 11 that, uh, that the nations are mentioned again, but there they're mentioned in a very different way. The nations have come up against Jerusalem and uh, are saying, let our eyes gloat over her. It's very different. So the people are streaming to Jerusalem. As they're, as they're learning God's ways, as they're worshiping the God of Israel, again, we're looking into the future, that this is what's going to be happening in the future. So they're worshiping the God of Israel then. Uh, it says the, the Lord is going to judge between many peoples. He will render decisions for mighty distant nations. So as the peoples are submitting to God's word and following his ways, they're also submitting to God's just judgment. He is the one who is, is going to rule. And as a result, because it is God who is justly judging and reigning on the earth, uh, warfare is no longer a means of, of, uh, of making decisions between peoples. So Micah pictures this time when, when there won't be war. It says they're going to hammer their swords into plowshares. They're going to hammer their spears into pruning hooks. They're not going to lift up sword against one another. They won't train for war. Um, and this is, this is one of the, the reasons why I think what's in reference here is this future state after Jesus returns. Uh, statements like, um, uh, nation uh, will, uh, will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Never again seems to me to be pretty final. So that's why I think this is talking about something in the future after Jesus returns, this kind of, uh, this time when he sets up this this reign of peace on the earth. Interesting to note in verse 3 that this idea that they're going to hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. They're going to, rather than than take life, they're going to use their tools to cultivate land, right? Which is something that was part of God's original design, right? Adam was created to, to work the ground, and so God is restoring, in a sense, uh, humanity to its original design. And you have this interesting phrase in verse 4. Each of them will sit under his vine, under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken. I know when you guys think about having an ideal world, you're all thinking about sitting under your vines and fig trees, right? Right? It's not sitting on the beach, 
or anything like that. It's under your vine and your fig tree. This seems kind of an odd phrase. If you look at uh, 1 Kings 4.25, you don't need to turn there necessarily, but 1 Kings 4.25 uses this phrase. It's used a couple other places in Scripture as well, but it talks about the days of Solomon. This is the height of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel is still united. Solomon's about to build the temple. He's asked God for wisdom. He's expanded the borders of Israel. He, and it says he has peace on all sides. Right? So David's reign is marked by war on all sides. Right? He's, always, he's always fighting. And the height of his reign is when he's finally got peace. Same with Solomon. Solomon has peace on all sides. And it says in uh, 1 Kings 4.25, So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, which is from the very north to the very south, all the days of Solomon. And so it's this, it's this phrase that would have uh, meant a lot to those who are reading it, knowing that this is the way that the time during Solomon is described. This, uh, the, the son of David, right? Solomon, the son of David, reigning. There's peace on all sides, and there's, people are dwelling in complete security. And Micah's saying, that's going to happen again in the future. That's going to happen again. Interestingly, uh, he says it's not just going to happen for Judah and Israel, because here he's talking about the nations. Each of them, these, these nations who have come to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel, they're going to sit under their vine and their fig tree. And no one's going to make them afraid. Why? Because God has declared it to be so. You think about if you were uh, a Jew in Jerusalem at the time, and here's Micah saying, by the way, all of these foreign nations that are coming up to, to conquer you, by the way, in the future, they're going to worship the God of Israel too. You may not be so happy about them coming coming to church with you, right? Um, and so this this may have pressed them a little bit to think. Wait a minute, someday these these nations are going to get to participate too. And this was one of the problems that they were facing. Right? The Jews, Israel, was supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be the place out of which the knowledge of God radiated to the rest of the world. But they began to, to hoard it, right? First of all, they didn't follow God themselves, but then they definitely didn't want anything to do with the nations. And, they, and, and this is actually in Mark, uh, in the God, we're going to get to it eventually in, in Mark. It's not just in Mark, but it's in the, in the other Gospels as well, right? When Jesus comes to the temple and he gets so upset about what's going on in the temple, um, oftentimes we think it's because there was money in the temple, right? Now, there was certainly impropriety with money, going on in the temple. But I think it's in Mark where uh, Jesus, Jesus is quoting uh, parts of Isaiah and he's saying, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations and you've turned it into a den of thieves. There he's referencing the book of Jeremiah, 
The idea is not that they've made it a place where money gets exchanged because there were, there were stipulations for Israelites to be able to come to the temple to buy the sacrifices they need, right? So that wasn't the problem so much as it was um, you're not letting the Gentiles uh, even come to where they're supposed to come, right? The, the, the temple, the, the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come to worship God was now being used to sell all the merchandise. It was the gift shop for the temple. So Jesus comes and he gets pretty upset. It's like, you guys are supposed to be a light to the nations. You're not let, even letting them in. So this is something that, um, that may have kind of pressed the, uh, the Jewish readers a little bit, thinking, oh right, it's not all about us. God's plan has always been to bless the world through the seed of Abraham. Paul tells us is ultimately Christ. All right, so then you have verse 5. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Almost kind of like an aside, like he steps out of this, this prophecy talking about what's coming in the future, this future kingdom. And now he returns to the, to the present and says, though all the people, so all the nations, uh, are, are walking each in the name of his God. So he's describing what's happening right now, right? Because the nations aren't following the God of Israel right now. It says, even though that's what they're doing, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You think about this, think, think about if, if, if what's happening here, if, if, if Micah, if this part of Micah, we, we looked at this a little bit last week, this part of Micah is happening during the reign of Hezekiah. Okay? Um, we saw that, remember, um, in, the, in the book of Jeremiah, when they quote Micah 3, they say this is what was happening during the reign of Hezekiah. So during the reign of Hezekiah, the Assyrians come, they lay siege to Jerusalem. And they surround the city, and they, and they basically they keep all the Jews in Jerusalem. And there's in, uh, in 2 Chronicles, it's also in 2 Kings, but 2 Chronicles 32, 9 to 32, I think it's 9 to 32. You have this story of the, the Assyrians calling out to the people in Israel saying, don't listen to Hezekiah, don't believe in the God of Israel, we are going to conquer you like we've conquered everybody else. The God of Israel can't save you. you consider the, as the Assyrians, as the enemies of the people of Israel around the city, they're calling out to the Jews, say, come out to us, make peace with us, don't follow Hezekiah. And this would have been a temptation for the Jews at the time, right? Boy, it looks like uh, everything's going south for us. We could save ourselves by, by going out, by defecting and going out to, to our enemies, and uh, then they'll, they'll take care of us, and we're not going to be stuck here and, and starve to death in the siege stuff. Now, we come to find Hezekiah repents, they call out to God, and God kills like half the Assyrian army, and, uh, and Jerusalem saved. So, but if you think this is maybe a temptation at the time, then Micah's admonition makes sense. He says, the nations are going to come in the future. You're surrounded by them right now, uh, but right now, they're walking in the name of their God. Don't go out to them. Right? Be faithful. Walk 
now. The nations are going to follow God in the future, but that's in the future. You can follow him right now. The nations are ultimately going to bow to him, not to their gods. So it makes no sense for you to bow to their gods now. You can bow to the true God now, right? This is like Philippians 2, where it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Who bows? Everyone. Everyone bows. You can bow now in allegiance, or you can bow later in shame and condemnation. But everybody bows. Everybody bows. So maybe Mike is saying, this is what the nations are doing now, but this is what we need to do now. And it's sort of a transition. So here he's talking about the nations. That's what they're doing now. Here he's talking about us, the Jews, Israel. Verses 6 to 8, then move to talk about what's the future going to be for the Jewish people, because right now it looks kind of bleak, right? Surrounded by enemy armies, not walking with the Lord. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I've afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant, the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, he, he kind of gave us this idea in seed form. Right? He talks about the future. This is this kind of mini promise of salvation at the end of chapter 2. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I'll put them together like sheep in the fold, like flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. So here he kind of expands on this idea. He says, okay, in that day, in that future day, I'm going to assemble Israel. I'm going to gather them. It's going to be a remnant, right? It's going to be a remnant that we learn from Paul in, in, uh, in Romans 11. God's always had a remnant of people who are faithful to him. All through the Old Testament, we see it. Paul says it's still true. There are people that God has for himself, chosen by grace. Paul's first example of that is himself. Actually, he says, you don't, don't think God has abandoned the Jewish people. You know why? It's like, because I'm a Jew, and he saved me by grace. He's talking about in the future, there's going to be, he's going to bring together this remnant. He's going to make them a, a strong nation. And the Lord will, will reign over them. So more than just gathering them back together, the Lord himself is going to reign over them forever. He's going to reign over them, not just from heaven, but from Mount Zion. Right, and that picks up on the promise of, of uh, chapter 2, verse 13, that not just are the people going to be gathered together as a remnant, it's the Lord himself who's going to, to reign. Uh, this is uh, the, same, the same root as the word king in Hebrew. Right, so just like we saw in chapter 2, verse 13, that uh, the Lord is going to be this king who leads them out of exile, so the Lord is going to be the one who is king over them in Mount Zion. 
And verse 8 continues this idea of kingdom. He says, As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. I'm going to talk about former dominion and, and kingdom here briefly. Um, just as an aside, uh, tower of the flock and hill of the daughter of Zion um, there are some places that say this is a reference to a place in, in Bethlehem. And so they see this idea of, uh, to you the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Zion, as a reference to the incarnation. Uh, I don't think that's the case. Part of the reason being that, uh, that the tower of the flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion, or the hill of, uh, daughter of Zion is oh, just another way of talking about Jerusalem or the people of Jerusalem. The hill of the daughter, it's probably talking about uh, a part of the Temple Mount. Right, so there's a place in, in Jerusalem on one of the sides of the Temple Mount that's uh, called uh, the Tower, I think the Hebrew word is Ophel, Tower of the Flock. Um, it's probably a, a reference to this one particular part of the Temple Mount. So he's talking about this Temple Mount in Jerusalem. To you it will come, the former dominion will come. Uh, what's the former dominion? Well, it's the kingdom, but the former dominion, this points us to the fact that he's looking at the Davidic kingdom, this kingdom that was ruled by David and his descendants, the kingdom that was promised uh, forever. And so somehow Micah sees the Lord himself is going to reign, but he also sees it being the former dominion, the Davidic kingdom. And so we're starting to see something that's not entirely clear yet, right? If, we're, if we only have the book of Micah, we maybe don't exactly know what he's getting at, but we're starting to see some strands come together. Remember, 1 Peter says that the prophets who prophesied about Christ, they didn't know everything that they were saying. They didn't know what the Spirit was saying through them. Uh, they longed to know what we know. We know looking back now. We're starting to see these strands come together that, that the Lord is going to reign, but somehow the Lord is going to reign through this, this Davidic monarch. But the Davidic monarch, this, this king, is also the Lord. And so somehow the, the idea of the, the son of David, the Messiah, and the Lord himself are, are being increasingly identified with one another. So again, it's not entirely clear yet. We only have Micah. It becomes much clearer as we go through the Bible, obviously when we get to Jesus, it becomes very clear. Um, but we're starting to see God revealing that increasingly. It's more than just God being related in some way to this king. It's God himself being this king. And so, it's this promise. The, the Gentiles, the nations are going to come to worship God. God's going to reestablish uh, the people of Israel, they're all going to be there to worship this king, uh, this anointed king in the line of David, who is the Lord himself. We obviously know him as Jesus. Then we, we switch focus a little bit. And in verses 9 to 13, now we come back to the present a little bit. So that was a, that was a nice little vacation in the future. That sounds like a pretty good deal, right? If you want to read something similar to the way that... Um, Micah uh, 4, the beginning of Micah 4 sounds, uh, look at Zechariah 14. A lot of similarities between the, the conditions that are described there with the Lord 
reigning and the nations coming to worship him and, and the people dwelling in safety. But now we wake up from the dream and we're back in the present. But we're, we're not back in the present for God to announce more judgment per se, but announce how he's going to rescue his people through judgment. So these, these two um, sections, uh, 9 and 10 and then 11 to 13, each begin with, with now. Now. So previously it was in those days, right? In the, day, in the last days, in that day. Now it's now. Snap back to reality. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Has your counselor perished that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? He's describing this present situation in, in Jerusalem. It's dire. The people are crying out loudly like a woman in childbirth. Um, I thank God that my wife had epidurals with the birth of our two kids. Um, we were uh, in the hospital overnight when my second son was born. And there were three other women who came in during the night while my wife was in labor. Um, and we were able to sleep uh, until these three women came in and all gave birth naturally. These screams are terrifying. This is, this is, not, this is not good. Now listen, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to like, be trite about that. I, I'm thankful that I don't have to give birth. So, so the people of Jerusalem are describing, this is the kind of, this is the kind of pain that they're in. Um, the idea of there, there being no king among you or, or your counselor perished, maybe uh, reference to the fact that the, the, the monarchy is falling apart. Uh, the, the present king is not the king that's promised. Unlike this, former dominion, this king who is coming, right now, this is the situation. There's no king. The Davidic line is being broken, probably looking at the time immediately before the exile to Babylon. So here Micah is looking past where he is uh, living, right, during the time of the Assyrians, looking forward about 100 years to the next time an army is going to come conquer Jerusalem, and this time it's going to be final. And the reason I say that is because here in verse 10, there's an explicit mention of Babylon, right? So it seems like now we're talking about uh, something uh, that's, that's more contemporary to Micah. We're not looking into the far future, but we are uh, looking at something kind of intermediately into the future, about 100 years after he's prophesying. Again, one of the challenges of reading prophetic literature is that Micah doesn't tell us, oh, by the way, in verse 9, now this is when I'm telling you this is going to happen. This is about 100 years from now. Right? He doesn't tell us at the beginning of verse 1, by the way, this is thousands of years into the future when Jesus comes back. You don't know who Jesus is yet, but just keep reading. You'll find out. Right? So this is one of the challenges. So we have to piece together, well, why do we say this is happening then? So the idea of no king being among you, the kings are being, are being taken out of uh, Jerusalem and either set up as puppets or, or uh, carted off to, to Babylon uh, at the time. And, uh, and then the fact that Babylon's mentioned there in verse 10 makes me think, okay, this is right before the final conquest of Jerusalem. He says, writhe in labor to give birth, daughter of Zion. So he's talking to Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem's gripped like a woman in childbirth. The, the nice thing about childbirth, well, the nice thing about childbirth, 
please don't send me any emails about this. Um, at the end of the childbirth, there's a child, right? Here, the child is not uh, Jerusalem giving birth to this mighty nation of people who are going to do God's work. Here, it's, it's people uh, who are, what? They're going out of the city to dwell in the field and go to Babylon. So the idea there is it's like Jerusalem is giving birth in agony to people, right? Like the gates are opening and the people are coming out to go into exile in Babylon. He said, that's the situation right now. But unlike in the first three chapters when he's talked about this and has been really negative, saying, you guys deserve this, right? They still deserve it. But now he's saying, yeah, this is what's going to happen. You are going to go to Babylon, but there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Um, very different tone. The Lord is going to, to rescue the people out of Babylon. And then the last section, verses 11 to 13. So verses 9 and 10 were this promise of, of rescue or deliverance, even though right now they're, they're suffering and in distress, saying, no, listen, the Lord's, not, the Lord's not done with you, right? He's got a plan for you, but you are going to go to Babylon. So don't think that it's going to happen right now. But that doesn't mean that God's plan has failed. And here it's a promise of victory despite present defeat. So here we see the nations, right? Many nations, these nations who are going to come in the future to worship God. Right now they've been assembled against you. This is passive. Not, not they've assembled themselves. These nations have been assembled against you. God's done the assembling, right? He's using the nations to punish his wicked people. But they're not going to get away with it in the long, in the long run. Right? These nations are saying, let her be polluted. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. So they think they're hot stuff. Verse 12, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his purpose. They don't know that uh, they're actually, uh, just as I think as Isaiah describes them, they're like a donkey with a bit in its mouth. The Lord is just leading wherever he wants them to go. The Lord is sovereign over them, and he's, he's going to punish them for their actions, that they're willfully doing, but he's using them to accomplish his purpose. He's saying he's gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Picturing them as stalks of wheat that are about to be crushed. And he says, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. For your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze. He's picturing Jerusalem, Zion, is an ox getting ready to thresh, right? Getting ready to, to, to walk out around this millstone and crush the grain and all that kind of stuff. That you may pulverize many peoples. I love this. What a great word. You may pulverize many peoples. That you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and the wealth of all the earth. 
the point of verse 13 is to describe how through God's divine power and enablement, Zion will be invincible in this battle. Afterwards, the nations will come to pay tribute to God in Zion, and the wealth of, their na- of the nations, which has been gained by unjust means, will be devoted to God. And I think this is probably, again, referring to this, this time far in the future. Again, this is something that if you were to read Zechariah 14, you'd see something very similar happening here. Uh, and that, again, talking about the, the far future when Jesus comes back. So in spite of present appearances, God promises a future glory for his people. Right? His purpose, his name, they, they still stand, despite what it looks like. And it's the same with us today. Right? You may ask, why is it taking so long? So the, the Jews are probably thinking that too. Well, God, you, you promised this. Why is it taking so long? Why don't you just come and finish it? Well, that's a question that apparently people around the, the time of the uh, Apostle Peter were asking. Look at Second Peter 3. You have people mocking Christians, saying, where is this Lord you talk about? You talk about hoping for his coming. Where, where is he? Why is he taking so long? And Peter says, don't count the Lord's patience as slowness. Right? He's not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God's going to do justice, and he's going to bring deliverance, but in the end, there are going to be a multitude that no one can number from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and language coming to worship God in Zion. And so, Interesting that, that Mike is offering this ultimate hope. He's saying you have to look at the big picture. You can't only look at right now. Right? You can't only look at right now to evaluate God's faithfulness or what God's plan is. We have very narrow focuses. Foci. We tend to think about our lives, about the stuff that we go through, and we go through stuff. Right? I'm not, not going to make light of that. You have to think of like what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, right? Consider the light and momentary affliction that we're currently experiencing, not to be compared with the weight of glory that is to be revealed. That's the, the message that I think Micah is trying to give his people. Like, yes, things are going bad now. This is what God promises in the future. This is how God is going to be faithful. You may not experience it the way that you think you should experience it, but you don't get to write the script. God does. And everything he does is good.